And uh, it is my great pleasure to invite David uh, to come up. I have known David for three days now, and I can tell you that in his pursuit pursuits t- towards pastorship, that he will absolutely be successful in that. He has a tremendous heart for people. Um, he is he has demonstrated great wisdom, um, great kindness, great compassion, and I'm myself very excited to hear the message that he has to bring. So let's welcome David up warmly, and David, we're all looking forward to hearing your lesson. Thanks very much, Chris. Now, I know what you're all immediately thinking. Look at this city boy. Can't do anything without his technology. (laughs) But uh, give me one moment here just to get this set up. So um, I just want to say on behalf of our team, it's just been such a pleasure um, being here and getting to know you guys. And it really, you know, oh, apologies. Microphone. Um, people do say that uh, the city is much more friendly. I mean, the the rural country, rural areas are much more friendly and uh, hospitable, and we've definitely experienced that. Not to bash the city, but you guys have been wonderful, and uh, getting to know you and connecting with you guys has just been really good. I really anticipated that this weekend would be a time of learning and joy and fun, but it's gone way above and beyond. So, thank you to all of you for that. So my message today, um, obviously we're in the lead up to Easter. We've got lovely weather outside, a little earlier than we were expecting. Thankfully, after that absolutely abominable February, it was absolute, it was uh, bone chilling. Um, but uh, now we're heading toward Easter, heading toward spring. And so uh, I preached a sermon at my home church last week, and I'm going to give you a kind of re, um, reversion of that. And it's all, it's, the purpose was to lead up to Easter. Um, so when Jesus was di- uh, died and rose again, and that the church celebrates that worldwide. And so the theme I was given by my pastor to talk about was how ransom and redemption, how Jesus on the cross was the ransom for our sins and for our healing and for our freedom. And because he paid that ransom, he redeemed us or delivered us from all kinds of things and all kinds of situations. So hopefully you guys have just had your Easter reading that you were just doing and you got a couple more of those. So hopefully I can contribute a little bit toward your build up to Easter. Uh, just kind of frame our heads in that kind of headspace. Um, and so you may be wondering, okay, ransom and redemption sounds interesting. If you're like me, you like theology, you're thinking that sounds really interesting. But the one question you may have in your mind is, well, that sounds very intriguing, but what does ransom redemption 2,000 years ago on a cross in the in Palestine have to do with me and my life here today? And I don't think saying that is selfish. I think it's actually a necessary question. How do we take the words of Scripture and the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and, and apply it to our lives here today? So before I really get into any Bible verses or anything like that, I want to take a little bit of time just to say, how do these themes relate to your life to my life? So I want to do that just by telling you a little bit of a story about my own life. Um, And from there, I'm going to try and see how we can make this applicable because I believe it is applicable. It's it's the most applicable thing there is, is Jesus and what he did for us. So I'll tell you a little bit of a story about my own life, and I won't go into all the details. We don't have all that time, but I grew up in a Christian home. This sounds like I'm going to tell you my whole life story, but don't worry. I'm not going to tell you my whole... Starting age four... No, I'm just kidding. I'm going to just give you a quick synopsis, but uh, I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, but we were a Christian home, and my parents had real faith, and I'm not doubting that. We were a bit nominal, if you want to call it. We kind of went to church on Sunday mornings. And that was mostly the extent of it. You know, we didn't, we didn't even really pray at meals or anything like that. And I don't uh, criticize my parents for that. I'm thankful that I was just brought up in a Christian home. But just so you have a bit of a perspective. So that was my context. 
And when I hit age 10, 11, 12, around that time, my parents started having a really, really tough time in their marriage. Um, and obviously a little, you know, 10 year old David that has, uh, as adults, we, we look back and we think we almost don't even grasp how big an effect that kind of thing can have on a young mind and a young heart. And so little David was having a hard time. And not only because of that, but that was kind of the start of it. At that young age, 10 or 11 years old, um, I developed a pretty serious addiction. And that addiction lasted right the way through into my teenage years, all the way until I was, or, you know, pretty much just turned 18. And so that was a really challenging time for me. And I really felt like it owned me. You know, I felt trapped. I felt, um, I just felt like I was in a prison that I couldn't get out of. And that was really tough. And it was extremely challenging. And there were times in my life through that period, that those seven, eight year period, where I was really trying to get free. You know, I was doing the things I knew I was supposed to do. I was reading my Bible. And I'm not saying this is bad, but I was reading my Bible, praying, uh, worshiping. And I was just trying and trying and trying. And it was just like I was in this cage. I was trapped in whatever I tried, I couldn't get out. And I don't want to paint the picture of I was this goody two-shoes teenager who was always trying to reach for God. For the most part, my teenage years were characterized by rebellion against God and darkness and things like that. But there were these times, these bright spots where I was trying to get free. I was reaching for something and I was longing for Jesus to come and break me free. Fast forward to 2009. On my 18th birthday, I got on a plane to Canada. The plan was to be there for five months and go back to Scotland. That was nine and a half years ago. So I love you guys in Canada so much. I just decided. Yeah. So, uh, I did one of these things, a gap year. It's not as common in Canada, but it's more common in the UK. So you finish high school. And so I finished high school early 2009. And then you defer your entry to university by year and you travel and do stuff like that. And the typical, you go on a gap here and you never come back. That's what happened to me. Um, and so I went to do a five month, uh, kind of like a Bible college program. And the goal was then to come back to Scotland and uh, do university. And so it was very, are you guys familiar with YWAM, Youth with the Mission? So it was very similar to a YWAM DTS. This is lots of letters, which you may not know. So YWAM, Youth with the Mission. DTS Discipleship Training School. So it wasn't with YWAM, it was with a church, but it was very similar to that. It's a five-month program where you get mentored, you get biblical teaching, and then at the end they send you on a kind of little missions trip. Very similar to what we're doing here with ABC, but it was uh, it was longer than that. It was for three weeks. And so as I you know, was on the plane thinking I was only going to be there for five months, I was still 100% addicted to this thing that I just felt like it owned me. I felt trapped. I felt contained. I just couldn't get out. And within the first, I don't have time to go into all the details, but within the first two months or so, absolutely everything changed. I went back at Christmas to visit my family and it was literally a case of you know, who are you and what have you done with David? <laughs> you know, like I looked kind of similar externally, but everything was just completely different on the inside. And like I said, I don't have time to go into that and all the details, but suffice it to say, Jesus did an incredible thing in my life. And so within two months, I was completely free from that addiction. And I tried to get out of it many times before. It just had never happened. And he broke me out of it. He set me free, showed me his love showed me how he felt about me. And that just made all the difference when I really got how he felt about me, how he loved me deep in my heart. And it just changed absolutely everything. And so to bring it back to our lives and your life and the the themes we're discussing here today, ransom and redemption, which is on the cross, I'm convinced that that 
freedom that I got, which changed my life. It's the best, the best thing that ever happened to me. I've been a totally different person ever since. That would not have happened. That would never have happened without the cross. Um, and sometimes, you know, I take things for granted. You know, I take the home that I live in for granted. I take the great marriage I have with my wife. I take my school for granted. But it's helpful to think back to that time when my life was a, a disaster, a wreck. And it would never have changed had it not been for the cross. And I would not have all these things, you know, my wonderful wife, my marriage, school. I would not have these things if it were not for the cross. Because it was on the cross that Jesus paid our ransom. And it was on the cross that he redeemed us from all these things that we get trapped in, that we get stuck in. So that's a little bit of an introductory story to get to know me a little bit and relate it to an everyday life. Like if Jesus hadn't paid my ransom to redeem me and deliver me, I would not be here today. I would not be going for ministry. I would not have a healthy marriage. My marriage would have been a disaster. And Jesus paid my ransom so that I could be delivered and free. And so I want to introduce to you a kind of, we just did a preaching class introductory preaching. So they taught us to kind of have your big idea, or in this case, it's a topical sermon. So maybe a thematic statement, basically sum the whole sermon up in one sentence. And so that's what I'm going to do. Jesus delivered us from the power of sin and Satan at great cost. And you see these two words, cost and delivered us. That's ransom and redemption. Ransom, he paid a great price and redemption. He delivered us from all these things that we feel trapped in, that we feel contained in. So now I want to make it even more specific. You may be here today and, you know, you're probably not wrestling with some kind of big life-altering addiction that I like I was struggling with. That's probably not your story. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. Maybe, but what I would like to suggest is that I think it's a common human experience to feel trapped in things. You know, whether we like it or not, I think maybe not right now in life, but certainly times in our life and maybe right now in life, we, we have felt trapped in certain patterns of behavior, in certain patterns of thinking. And maybe you're here today and you have that one little thing that you just, you, you're trying to go for Jesus. You're trying to obey Jesus. You're trying to love him with all your heart. And there's just this thing that just won't break, this thing that just won't go away. And so here today, I don't have, you know, any addictions. Jesus has set me free from those things. But I still have issues. You know, obviously I'm not perfect. I call it my mini road rage. And it sounds kind of funny, but it's a, I, I, I don't have major road rage. I'm not punching people and honking my horn. And <laughs> thankfully, because that would be bad news. But, uh, you know, my wife will attest when I'm driving, I am a grumpy Scotsman. Like, uh, absolutely, you know, 85 year old grumpy Scotsman who's had 85 years of life to make him bitter. And these drivers are going past. And when they're doing crazy things, I've always got some bitter little thing to whisper under my breath. And, you know, my wife would love if Jesus set me free from that. And I, I would love if Jesus set me free from that. And as funny as that is, as, you know, as we're all laughing about it, and it is funny. But at the same time, I genuinely think that grieves the Holy Spirit. And, you know, so I don't have this big addiction, but I still have ways in which I need to be set free. I have ways in which I need to be released from this. You know, I've tried, David, just stop being angry at these poor drivers. (laughs) You make mistakes driving too. And I believe that Jesus has the power. He's paid the cost. He's paid the price. So not only am I saved from my sins, past tense, but my current issues, my current struggles, the current ways in which I feel trapped, Jesus has the power and the ability and the willingness to bring us freedom in those areas. So from my sermon today, I want you to ask two questions. The first question is, ransom and redemption, he's paid our price to deliver us. What does that all mean? What does that look like? And so my first goal there is I want to inform, obviously. You know, I want we want to talk about what the Bible teaches. That's a big part of preaching, obviously. Understanding what the Bible teaches. 
I have another goal that I want you to focus on. And the second question is, how do I engage with these themes of ransom redemption 2,000 years ago? How do I engage with that here today? You know, maybe you're thinking there is that issue that I feel a little bit trapped in. And Jesus isn't here to condemn you. He came not to condemn you, but to save you. And you're thinking, I would like to get free from that. How can I engage with this today? And I have a suggestion. You know, we talk about the mental side of things at college, uh, you know, learning exegesis and theology and all these different things. But the professors at ABC are very keen as well. Don't leave your heart out. Don't leave your connection to your heart out as well. And so I want to inform today, but I want us to ask the question, a devotional question. What kind of a God, what kind of a person, Jesus Christ, would be in perfect glory, perfect blissful fellowship with the Father, no pain, in perfect communion and fellowship with God, and he steps down and Philippians 2 says he becomes a servant. The king of all kings becomes a servant. And then he becomes obedient even to die on the cross for people like us, for people like me. And Jesus, as you will read, I'm sure, in your readings, Jesus on the cross, as he is being murdered by sinful and broken human beings, says, Father, forgive them. What kind of a God does that? You know, what kind of, you know, the, the gods of the other religions, I'm not wanting to knock other religions, but there is no Christian, there is no religion like Christianity. There's no God like the God of Jesus Christ who would forgive his murderers, serve his broken disciples who betrayed him, and he loves us that much. What kind of a God would do that? So those are my two goals. Let's seek to be informed together, and let's seek to ask that question devotionally as we look at, study the texts and things like that. What kind of a God would do this for us? And I think that it's as we ask that question, as we reflect, as we pray, Jesus loves me that much. Jesus is that humble. He's that beautiful. He's that righteous. He's that holy. He's that just. He's that loving. He's that merciful. As we reflect on that, as we engage with that, and as we go from here today and think about that, I believe it's in that context that Jesus, and other contexts, but it's in that context that Jesus can come to us and break us free from these little things that are still holding us back, these little things in which we still feel trapped. So now we're going to ask the question, very important question, obviously, what does God have to say about all these things in his word? So if you want, uh, we're not going to read a specific passage, but if you would like to, uh, first thing we're going to talk about is the book of Ruth um, and how it is an Old Testament pointer toward Jesus and the ransom and redemption that he secured for us on the cross. So you guys remember the story of Ruth, I'm sure. I'm going to reiterate it for you a little bit just so that we can jog our memory. I'm just going to take a quick drink of water here. So if you would like, you can turn to the book of Ruth. So the book of Ruth, a couple main characters, obviously Ruth, Naomi, um, Boaz, big characters. And it was set in the time of the Judges. So if you remember the time of the Judges, we've had Joshua, and then we go into Judges. So all the lifetime of Joshua, he was this great leader. And all the lifetime of Joshua, the people of Israel remained faithful to God. And then when when Joshua passes away, and all the elders who worked under Joshua passed away, then things start to go a little bit south. And the, the, the historical context of the time of the Judges is an extremely negative time in the history of uh, Israel. You may remember there's this kind of cycle, there's this cyclical pattern where the Jewish people are with God and then they rebel. And then God raises up a judge, they come back, and as soon as that judge is gone, rebel. Up, down, up, down, up, down. And there's just no faithfulness to the covenant, even though they've only just come into the promised land not that long ago, and yet they're still struggling with faithfulness. There's also this disastrous civil war in Israel at the time of the judges. 
So that's the time in which uh, Naomi and these guys were functioning. So Naomi was married to Elimelech. That's a hard one to say. Say that ten times fast. Elimelech, Elimelech, Elimelech. That's a hard one to say. But he, uh, she was married to Elimelech, and they were in the promised land. And then there was the severe famine. And so that kind of forced them out, and they chose to leave, and they went to the land of Moab. And then things get even worse. Elimelech passes away and dies and leaves Naomi with her two sons in this foreign land. The two sons then go on to marry two Moabite women. Orpah, I always struggle. It's not, uh, what's her name? It's not Oprah Winfrey. It's Orpah. <laughs> I said, Oprah Winfrey who loved 3,000 years ago. No, that's bad theology. But so it's Orpah and uh, Ruth was the other uh, Moabite woman who Naomi's two sons married. And then it becomes almost like a Shakespearean tragedy where these two sons die as well. And Naomi is left with these two women, Orpah and Ruth, in this foreign land and they are all widowed. Now, becoming a widow or a widower in either side of the gender is a devastating situation at the best of times. Even in today's culture where we have, you know, social security and, you know, organizations, charities and friends and all these things. They didn't have any of that back then. But even today, uh, being widowed is a very difficult and trying situation. But historically, culturally, back in their day, becoming a widow was nothing short of a complete disaster. You're a widow in that context. You are virtually guaranteed to be poor and you're completely defenseless. And the society as a whole doesn't have structures to guard you, to protect you, to look after you. So you're almost definitely going to be impoverished and you're almost definitely, not definitely, but there's a high likelihood you're going to be taken advantage of because you just don't have anyone to fight off the oppressors. And so Naomi and uh, Ruth and Orpah, they're in this disastrous situation. Orpah decides to go back to her family, her Moabite family. But then uh, Naomi decides, I'm going to go back to the promised land. They go to Bethlehem. And then we have what that line that uh, this book is famous for. Uh, Ruth decides to stay with Naomi in this amazing display of faithfulness. Uh, your people will be my people and your God will be my, my God. And now we have enter Boaz. This is where things become very... Uh, key for this theme of ransom and redemption. Boaz comes into the picture and he becomes this strange biblical phrase, but he becomes the kinsman redeemer of Ruth. Now, what is a kinsman redeemer? You may remember the Old Testament talks about uh, when an Israelite man dies and he leaves his wife widowed, the relative has a responsibility to marry that widow and raise up children for that deceased man. Two reasons for that. The first one is to carry on the family name But the second one, which we're going to focus on more now, is to redeem this woman from her horrendous situation. She's almost definitely going to be impoverished. She's in dire straits. And so that's the situation Ruth is in. And Boaz, at great personal cost, at great personal risk, he enters the situation and he becomes the kinsman redeemer for Ruth. And many uh, scholars and commentators will agree that's a really powerful foreshadowing of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Think about the the parallels here. Ruth corresponds to the bride of Christ. We were in dire straits before we had Jesus, before Jesus came into the world, before the cross. We were in dire straits. We were impoverished spiritually. We were dead spiritually. We were trapped and enslaved by our sins. And then Jesus comes in, just like Boaz, and the kinsman redeemer, and he, at great personal cost to himself, he steps into the situation, sees Ruth in her disastrous situation, just like Jesus saw us in our situation, and then he came in and is her redeemer, rescues her. So that's one prominent Old Testament foreshadowing of the ransom and the redemption that Jesus paid for us on the cross. 
Now there's other Old Testament examples. That word, that phrase, kinsman redeemer, also shows up prominently in the Old Testament in the return from exile, the return from Babylonian exile. The Old Testament describes that as God redeeming, delivering his people when they come back to the land. Can anybody think of another prominent Old Testament story which foreshadows redemption or deliverance? Anybody think anything? The one I'm thinking of is the Exodus. The Exodus is another very prominent Old Testament story where there is this redemption. And God is deeply personally involved in those situations. So he's paying a cost and he's redeeming, he's ransoming, he's rescuing people from that. So now we're going to look a little bit at some old, uh, some New Testament texts. Uh, I've got a quick story for you first. This is um, a bit of a harrowing story, but it's one that brings it right to home. Has anybody heard of the story of Amanda Lindho? Uh, I, uh, may pronounce, I may have pronounced her last name wrong, um, but she, uh, Alberta girl, she's born and raised in Red Deer. She's a journalist, and not that long ago, it's decently long ago now, but she had just this horrendous experience. She's a journalist. In 2008, she was in Somalia uh, doing some journalism, and at that time, she was kidnapped along with her uh colleagues by Somali Islamic militants and she was taken hostage for ransom and so even in our current situation here today we think ransom and redemption that's ancient and irrelevant that's 2,000 years ago and yet here we have just a matter of years ago someone in our own backyard in Red Deer is kidnapped and held at ransom what ended up happening was she ended up the ransom was paid and she was um she got out. She had this horrendous experience. She was very badly treated. But the point that I want to make there is, if that ransom had not been paid, then there would have been no hope for Amanda. If it was a life or death situation, these ransom, these hostage situations, it's not like, well, maybe it'll go well, maybe it won't. You know, we'll just cross our fingers. If the ransom wasn't paid, then she would have been in dire straits. And that's very similar to Jesus and us. If Jesus had not come for us and paid our ransom on the cross, there would have been very little hope for us. And so this is another story that kind of brings light to what Jesus has done for us. Eventually what happened, the, the ransom was paid. And it ended, we didn't know who did it at first, but um, it ended up being a co-owner of the Calgary Flames. Now I know uh, I maybe shouldn't be talking about the Flames in this kind of territory. I don't want to make myself any enemies here. Uh, go Oilers. Um, but, uh, you know, sh- <laughs> the, this, uh, it ended up, I believe the number was $1.3 million this guy pays to, to, to secure the release of Amanda Lindho. And think about that. First Peter says, we were not redeemed with perishable things like gold and silver. We were redeemed with the precious blood of the lamb. And I don't want to devalue what, absolutely, what that man did and how, what uh, Amanda Lindho has been through and the fact that she's free. That's amazing. I'm not trying to devalue that. But she was in this life and death situation. $1.3 million was the cost. And that pales in comparison to the cost and the price that was paid for for you and for me. So now we're going to ask the question. If you want to turn there, we're going to get there soon. Not right away, but we're going to get there soon. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. So you can turn there if you like. And we will actually read this text. We will actually get into it. Uh, First of all, the question, maybe good question to ask. If Jesus paid our ransom... Who was the ransom paid to? You know, that's a kind of logical question to ask, this whole idea of a ransom. Interestingly, the early church, so the first couple centuries of the early church, the early church fathers believed it was a literal ransom and it was paid to Satan. 
They had this understanding that Satan had enough authority and enough say and enough sway that he held mankind captive and God the Father needed to pay Satan a literal ransom, which was Jesus, for humanity to be set free. So that's one opinion in church history. Then we fast forward to the 11th century. There's this guy called Anselm and he talks about how God has, it's God who the ransom is being paid to. We're satisfying God and God's wrath. That's what the ransom is being paid to. And then the reformers in the 16th century pick that up and they say, yes, it's God and we're satisfying his wrath. Jesus was a literal ransom that was paid to sacrifice the wrath of God. I want to suggest to you those, those options are valid and I encourage you to do your own research and I don't want to tell you what to believe or anything like that. I've been reading this really great author, Fleming Rutledge, very fancy name, Fleming Rutledge. You're bound to be a scholar with a name like Fleming. Anyway, side story. My, guess what my, my great grandfather's name was? APC Lawrence. You will, you'll be, have a thousand years, you'll never guess. This is just a funny story. Adelbert Percival Cecil Lawrence. That is a fearsome name. You know, imagine being his child and getting in trouble and Adelbert Percival Cecil Lawrence is giving you in trouble. Anyway, uh, so this lady, Fleming Rutledge, she's this scholar, uh, New Testament scholar, and she does really good work on the cross and the crucifixion. And she says, um, she doesn't think it's a literal ransom. She thinks it's more of a metaphor and a parable to describe this main fact. It came at a great cost. Our freedom from these issues that we struggle with, all the testimonies that you've had in your past life for where Jesus provided for you. He set you free. He saved you from something. He forgave you. He comforted you. All the testimonies in your life right now and all the testimonies for the rest of your life, they are all directly related to Jesus delivering us from sin and Satan on the cross at great cost. And so she talks about how it's a metaphor and a parable, not to downplay the importance of it. It actually brings out more richness in it. It's this idea at great cost. That's what the, that's what the ransom piece means. It's not a literal you know, someone being paid is this idea of there's a great cost involved. So now let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 20, 28. I'm going to read it for you. And then we're going to discuss a little bit. It's just a short uh, chunk of scripture, but I'll read it out for you. Just as the, this is Jesus talking, he said, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that, there's an, there's an equivalent text to that in Mark, and they're the main ransom, uh, atonement texts in the Gospels. So the, all, the, all, answer, the question always is, if we want to under, understand one New Testament text, we want to understand the context. So what comes before it, what comes after it, all that Bible college jargon. So what comes after it? It's Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. What comes after the triumphal entry? The Passion. And so Jesus' passion, his death, his resurrection. So this uh, chunk of text is right leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection. So that's where it's positioned. Right before it, Jesus predicts his death for the third time in this gospel. So the whole theme is kind of it's framed in this foreboding, uh, building up to this crescendo of the death and resurrection of Christ. And in the actual chunk of text we're talking about, it's this very well-known uh, story where the mother of James and John, the wife of Zebedee, comes to Jesus and asks, I want my sons, my two sons here, James and John, I want them to sit at your right hand and your left hand in your glory. And Jesus basically starts by saying, you really don't, you wouldn't be asking me that if you knew what you were asking for, essentially. Because we know that in Jesus' glory, he's crucified. And who's on his right hand and his left hand? The two criminals who are being crucified with him. And so he says, are you able to drink, drink the cup that I drink? You know, are, uh, are you able to basically be crucified for the sake of the will of God? 
But then he goes on to this beautiful and life-transforming and world-shaking lesson. And he says, the leaders of the Gentiles or the non-Christians or the non-Jewish people, they lord it over the people who are under them. You know, the CEOs of the world, the Fortune 5. And I'm sure there are some uh, Christian CEOs, so I don't want to paint them all with the same brush. But, you know, the, the general stereotypical worldly leader, it's all about them and everybody underneath them exists to help and serve them. It's all about the top. Jesus flips that whole thing. Jesus has this habit of flipping things. You know, to live, you die. You know, to um, to receive, you give. And all he flips all these things. And to be great, you become the least. And so then Jesus comes and he says, what it means to be great in my kingdom is that you are a servant. And then he has this text, this ransom text in verse 28. And he says, true greatness in the kingdom of heaven is not about, you know, we could put it in a modern day example. It's not about having a big car or a big company. It's about being a servant. And then Jesus says, I am the ultimate uh, representation, the ultimate example of what it truly means to be great in God's kingdom. And he says, not only am I God, not only am I your teacher and your Lord, he says that elsewhere, but then he says, I've become your servant and I have stooped to the depth of dying on the cross to pay your ransom. And so that's the context in which we have this ransom text in Matthew. It's this ultimate definition of what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. It means to be the least. To be first, it means to be last. It means to be the servant. And so that's a New Testament look at um, what Jesus is teaching about ransom and redemption. So we've looked at the Old Testament, we've looked at the New Testament. I want to come full circle and just discuss again this issue of how does this relate to our everyday life? How does it relate to you? How does it relate to me? And remember my two goals at the start of the sermon. The first goal was to inform, hopefully there's been a little bit of that. And the second one is, Ask this question, Jesus is this ultimate example of greatness, this ultimate example of servanthood. What kind of a God, what kind of a person was that high, that perfect, that glorious, left everything behind and comes and serves us even to death on a cross? God is that beautiful. He's that awesome. He's that holy. He's that wonderful that he would do that for us. And so those are my two goals. And so as you go today, I just want you to Bear these things in mind. Okay, we've we've learned a little bit about ransom and redemption. But even more importantly than that, I think, we've we've had this time to gaze, if you like, to just gaze at Jesus and say, Jesus, you are beautiful. There is no one like you. There is no one beside you, just like we were singing. There's no equal, there's no uh, you know, there's no rival, there's no equal to Jesus. And so me personally, when I compare myself to Jesus, you know, um, and it comes time for me to give my tithe. I'm thinking, wow, 10%, that's a big number. 10% is a big number. And that, that's me thinking. And then Jesus comes and says, I'll give everything. I'll just give, I'll just give it all. Cause that's who I am. And that's what it means to be like my father. That's what it means to be me. That's what it means to be Jesus. So as you go today, I honestly believe that as we do that, as we reflect devotionally, Jesus, you are this wonderful and you did this for me. As we reflect on that prayerfully, and thankfully, I believe that Jesus can come and bring us freedom. That issue, maybe you've thought of something by now, that whatever you feel trapped in, you know, we, that whole, uh, paradigm of we have been saved. Jesus has saved us. He's still saving us now and he is saving us in the future. And I believe that as we meditate on these things, as we reflect, Jesus, you are this wonderful. You've done this thing for me. Show me who you are. Reveal yourself to me. Fill my heart with the truth of who you are. I believe that you can continue to set you at, uh, me and you free from the things that we continue to struggle with. And thankfully, even though we still struggle, we know there's no condemnation because he paid our ransom. 
So I encourage you, if you want a practical way to do that, just an idea, you don't have to do it. But as we go to potluck, as we go to the rest of our day, rest of our week, I, this is what I did uh, at the, my home church last year, uh, last week. And people really had great conversations out of it. So I encourage you, like I said, you don't have to, but if you'd like to engage with this, then think of one or two ways in which your life would be different if Jesus had not come and done what he did. And last week at my church, some people had some profound you know, exchanges of conversation. You find things out about people that you never knew what they went through, what happened to them, and what Jesus did to set them free. So I'm going to bring it to an end here with a prayer, but I encourage you as we go to potluck, as we go to the rest of our weeks, talk to your wife, your husband, your friends, your church family. What's what's one or two ways in which your life would be different if Jesus had never come and paid the price, paid the ransom for you to be delivered from sin and Satan? So let's pray together. Jesus, we just want to give you all the glory. We are your people and you love us and you provide everything we need. But we thank you that our best comes, our flourishing comes when we we are focused on your glory and not our own glory. So I thank you for every individual here. Thank you for the love that they've shown me, for the love that they've shown our team. Thank you that every, every corner of this planet, you have faithful servants who are loving you and serving you and loving your people. So I pray, Lord, as we think about these ways in which we really wish Jesus would set me free from that or that or this or that, that pattern, that habit, that temptation, whatever it may be. I pray that you would bring freedom and I pray that you would show us how beautiful you are, how amazing you are, how incredible you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. thing that ever happened to me. I've been a totally different person ever since. That would not have happened without the cross. You know, my wife will attest, when I'm driving, I am a grumpy Scotsman.